In Sundays we are studying the second letter of Paul to Timothy, and we're in the first chapter, and this morning we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. Second Timothy 1 and verse 13 says, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So here's this uh, Apostle Paul with his extraordinary uh, authority, his consciousness that God has called him, that Jesus Christ now is his master and has given him power. He commands that his letters be read and obeyed in the churches. He says to the Thessalonians, if anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Don't associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This uh, God has uh, taken care of Timothy in wonderful ways, blessed him with a grandmother and a mother who loved the Lord and then has watched over him, brought him to faith himself and all that he's needed, God has provided for him. And now it's Timothy's turn to take care of what God has provided in the apostolic message, what God has given us in the Bible. And uh, Paul takes very seriously his commission given to him by the Son of God, and so must Timothy, and so must you, and so must me. We are um, children of God in this world, and we must live and behave and believe as children of God. We are to teach exactly what Jesus Christ has given to us. We mustn't add to it. We mustn't detract from it at all. But Paul wasn't a tyrant He wasn't an egotist demanding total allegiance. He was open in telling us all the sufferings that he had gone through. He makes a list of the sufferings on one occasion to show that he has the real marks of a servant of God because the servant is not greater than his Lord. And our Lord suffered and so Timothy, uh, Paul suffers too. And then he laughs and mocks himself. I'm a fool, he said, to tell you all these things. And then he tells us this, that the good that he would do, he fails to do. And the nasty things that he hates doing, he finds himself doing. And he feels he's a failure. He's a wretched man. And so we're not offended when we come here and he tells us, what you heard from me, you keep. Because he saw the risen Christ and we didn't. And he personally received a charge from Jesus Christ to pass on the truths of Jesus. Uh, Remember at the Lord's Supper I say the words of Paul, I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Well, we haven't received words from the Lord that we pass on to other people as Paul did. So we are to keep what the Lord Jesus gave him to write. And so that's why we are looking at this passage. And the first point I want us to notice from this uh, verse is that we are to make sure we're all hearing what the Apostle Paul says. What you heard from me, keep. Now that's why God has brought you here. That's the first 
reason God has brought you here this morning to remind you of that, that what you hear in the New Testament from Paul and the other apostles, don't give it up easily. Hang on to it. Keep it. Now, uh, you think, well, that's pretty Alfred Place stuff. That's the sort of thing you'd expect me to say to you, and and you're absolutely right. And so I'm to try to make it fresh and invigorating this morning. That's my vocation. So let me say something um, just about what we've been given by Paul. And let me say it in a way that is perhaps fresh for you. I want to say to you um, that there are four, four important areas of truth and experience that uh, are given to us by the apostles in the New Testament and that we are to keep all four of them. Put, I put them together like that. And the first is uh, the realm of, of, of Christian teaching, Christian doctrine, theology, a body of divinity, things surely believed among us. And we are to keep that. Crucially important things about who God is and who we are and what's wrong with us and how Jesus Christ is the mediator and by the Lamb of God he's uh, brought us back to God. He's lived the life we failed to live and he's died the death that we must die unless he is our substitute and dies in our place. I'm talking now about uh, Romans 1 to 11 and Ephesians 1 to 4 and the letter to the Colossians, the opening chapters and so on. The Bible refers to that as the faith once delivered to the saints. Plain Christian teaching, confessional Christianity. And so you've got to gird up the loins of your mind and start to understand then concepts like justification and sanctification and union with Christ and adoption into the family of God and and those great things. They are the stuff of believing meditation. They are the stuff that we've been singing about. The hymnists have, have written these hymns and we meditate on them aloud and we sing to one another about the wonderful things that God has done for us. So we are to receive Christian teaching and theology. Secondly, we are to live a life that's pleasing to God. And God doesn't allow us to work out things that are pleasing to us and to claim that that life is also pleasing to God, that he's told us what sort of life is pleasing to him. And uh, he's told us that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. That's what he says. That's the life that's pleasing to him. Our eyes and our tongues, what we say, and our hands, what we touch, and our physical strength. And and we give that each day to God. I beseech you by the mercies of God, present your bodies living sacrifices to God after the doctrine. Therefore, a life is required. That we walk worthy of it. It's there in the Sermon on the Mount. It's there in Romans 12. It's there in the letter of James and so on. How can you who have died to the domination that sin once had over you when he told you, don't think about Christianity, don't think about Jesus Christ, and you were a slave to sin, but you were delivered from it. 
by the power of Jesus and his spirit. Well, how can you go on living a day longer than serving sin? Um, We're to be different, aren't we? We men are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And uh, we who have any authority over other men, school teachers, bosses, we are to do so in a kind and patient and a, and a holy way. That's the second area in which we are to be different. We are to keep, then, the ethics, the morality that God has plainly written in the Ten Commandments and so on. The simplest parts of the Word of God for how we are to live. Thirdly, there's a life of devotion to God. Individually, we're to go to God every day and we're to seek the face of God and we're to close our eyes and we're to pray to him and uh, we're to whisper into his ears as our loving Heavenly Father listens to us. And we go through the mediator, Jesus Christ. We say, we don't, we don't deserve to speak to the mighty creator of the Milky Way. But we're coming in Jesus' name and we're talking to you because he loved us and he's reconciled you to us. You're no longer angry with us but your anger has fallen on Jesus and now you smile and smile at us as we come to you. And we remember that little word acts, don't we, as a mnemonic. A-C-T-S. Firstly, adoration. We thank God for his temporal mercies, of course, that We have food in the refrigerator and health of body and a peaceful land. But then we think of all that he's done for us eternally in Jesus Christ. Washed us from our stain and our filth and clothed us in his righteousness. And he's going to keep us till heaven. And we adore him for doing that for us. A, adoration. Then C is confession, of course. We confess to him our sins. Uh, We don't need a confessor here in the world. We don't need a priest here in the world because Jesus Christ is the one we confess to and the one we speak to. And we tell him, sorry about today, Lord, we say. Sorry I was sharp with the the children, that I disobeyed mummy, that I was nasty, that I looked at things I shouldn't have looked at. And we're sorry. And we confess to him our, our sins. And then thirdly, in prayer, all right, there's tea, thanksgiving. That the life of grace that we've received leads to gratitude. That we're thankful to God for all his kindness and goodness and love to us. And Oh, and then we thank him for all his mercies to us. New every morning is the life our waking and arising proof. I'm alive. It's another day. It's another Sunday. I'm here with the people I love. I want to be with them forever and ever. Thank you, Lord. I could be in prison today. I could be in the gutter. I could be a drug addict. I could be broken-hearted over a bust-up relationship and sick at heart and full of guilt of all the daft evil things I did on a Saturday night but I'm here how good God is to me and I give him thanks 
for his son and his spirit and his people and his book and his day, thanksgiving. And finally, S is supplication, of course. And you you many things to pray for. Hallowed be your name. Oh, may your name be not dishonored more. May your kingdom come with power. May people do your will on earth as they do it in heaven. And we pray. As God tells us how we are to pray. And we supplicate. We pray for our families. We pray for our congregation. We pray for our friends who once were with us but now are in Latvia. Or in Benin. Or in Kenya. As Keith is back there, once again his heart is there and he's gone to join his heart and he's teaching again in, in Kenya. And we pray for him, okay? So that's the third thing, the life of devotion. And it's not just then personal devotion, but when we gather together. Our hymns reflect the solemnity and the awe-inspiring nature of God. And we gather with love for one another. We love one another with pure hearts, fervently. So, um, the, uh, the, the third area then is the area of devotion to God. And that's, again, what we mustn't let go of. These are the things that God has told us about in his word. And the fourth area then is the area of the Christian affections. That God requires. I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Now I'm talking about love and joy and peace. And they are affections. I'm talking about Paul saying, I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be contented. I'm not self-pitying. I don't repine. I'm, I'm not full of grumbles. But I'm content because the work is on the wheel. And as the wheel turns round, the potter is making it. Exactly as he sees fit, he's in charge of my life. And I'm learning day by day contentment. And I'm not worrying. Jesus says in Matthew 6, now you've got to make up your mind. You either worry or you trust me. And we trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And God comes to Elijah and says, why are you so long-faced? And why are you so sad? Rejoice in the Lord always. Christian affections, Christian emotions. And uh, you can't say to me, well, it's just my personality. My mother was a worrier and uh, my grandmother was a worrier and I worry too. You know that uh, the spirit of God that's in you is greater than your weaknesses. It is one of the, the basic fundamental approaches to uh, the Christian life. That we don't give in to our personalities. But we elevate them and ennoble them and kill the things about them that are not pleasing to God. That's, that's the, the great challenge that comes to us. Because he is great who indwells us. So I am saying to you that this apostolic message that, uh, that Paul gave to Timothy and that Timothy had learned and accepted was much more than um, doctrines. We need um, all four points. Uh, The Christian chair that we sit on has four legs. Now if one leg is six inches shorter than the other three, that's going to be a tricky seat to sit on. 
the balancing that you have to do and the folly of sitting there as it wobbles. Not good. Or if two of the chairs are six inches legs shorter than the other two. Well, my friends, that's hopeless, isn't it? You've got to have all four. Your understanding of truth and ethics and uh, of uh, the Christian emotions and uh, devotional life. All four are absolutely essential. And, and, and if you just pay attention to one of those areas and say, well, that's the great thing. You know what happens when people do that? Um, it is the devils who pay attention to the truth about who God is. They, they believe. They know he's triune, that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are devils yet. It's not enough just to have a good grasp of theology and doctrine. Not enough. Or um, the Pharisees, they were absolutely wild about being orthodox. They were as straight as a gun barrel and just as empty. They had no love for the God who they pleased by their scrupulous concern about the law. And uh, if you're then, if you think the only thing that matters is praying, then you'll end up in monasticism and having five times of prayer early in the morning and late at night. Get thee to a nunnery. And if your concern is about the emotional life, and that's the great thing, and you come here because it gives you some peace and uh, you can walk away a little more tranquil than you came. That's self-help religion. And we're not in that business. We're in the business of honoring God and pleasing God. You have to have all four of these things. That is what we're told here. The first thing that we're told by the Apostle Paul. Make sure that we are hearing what he says when he says to us then, what you heard from me and you heard those four areas. Keep those four areas. All right? That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, we are to keep the apostolic word as a pattern of sound teaching. You see, that's the phrase. What I've just told you is a pattern of sound teaching. People say, oh, they're very perplexed about the different denominations that there are. And uh, how can anyone know what is true? Well, if you bow down to Jesus Christ, If he's your Lord and Savior, it's not a problem. And there'll be enough wisdom in the wisdom given to you to bow down to Jesus Christ, not to be perplexed that there are Anglicans and that there are Pentecostals and Plymouth Brethren and Presbyterians and Congregationalists and so on. Because you will know that what the Bible says is true. Because Jesus tells you that. Thy word is truth, he says. The scripture can't be broken. When uh, Satan comes to him, he answers it. It is written. That's his great answer to doubt and attack. And his apostles had the same view, didn't they? 
Um, Peter says, holy men of old, he's talking about the writers of the Old Testament scriptures, they were borne along, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit in what they wrote. And Paul tells Timothy later in this letter, as we shall see, all scripture is God-breathed. That's what we are told. Now, a church which believes and preaches the Bible, well, there may be minor differences between one such congregation and another similar congregation over church government or over details of the second coming or over baptism. I call those differences leaf and twig differences. But uh, there are trunk and branch truths that we believe in common. And so we love J.C. Ryle and J.I. Packer. We love what they have written and they still help us enormously. And so uh, we know the truth. We know what the great confessions of the faith have said. We know what we must do to be saved. We're giving the same answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the pattern of, of sound teaching. And you look through the history of the church. You find there, there are always conflicts in every generation. And God raises up his people then. And they write the Chalcedon Creed and the Apostles' Creed. Wonderful documents, 1,600 years old, which summarize the nature of Jesus Christ and his two fold natures in one person. And then there's the 39 articles, I think, except for a couple of points on um, baptism and on church government. I believe them all. I'm more of an Anglican than many vicars. And then there's the great confessions of faith, the Westminster Confession, and the 1689 and the 1823, commemorated in the high street by a plaque on that chemist shop. And they summarize us. We know what's true. We know what the doctrines are. When I go and speak at a Christian Union meeting at a university, then um, I'm either sent beforehand the confession of faith, or the secretary comes to me uh, in the meeting, before or afterwards, and says, will you sign this? And there they have the dozen points of Christian doctrine that are things most surely believed and confessed by the church. And I, with thanks in my heart to God, I sign it. As I signed it first as a, um, a member of an executive in Cardiff University in 1959. And those truths that I believed then, I believe now. That is Christianity. It's a pattern of sound teaching. You know, that, that's what we asked about people, didn't we? And a new minister has come to town. Is he sound, we would say? Is he sound on that Jesus Christ is God? That he made atonement for our sins? That the Bible is true? That justification is by faith, and so on. Is he sound? There's a pattern of sound teaching that God has given to us in the Bible. And it's a pattern. How did you uh, learn handwriting in school? 
how, how, did, how did your teacher teach you? I, I'm sure that the older people are like me. Um, how I learned joined, joined up writing in uh, Abermore Lice Junior School, Boys School, um, in the 1940s. Um, we were given a piece of paper one day about that size. And there was a, a proverb written along the top. I think mine was, all that glitters is not gold, in beautiful copper handwriting. And there were five lines under it. And we had to copy, imitate this handwriting, in joined up writing underneath it, underneath it. We had to copy. That was the pattern for our handwriting. Now there's a pattern for what Christianity is. And that pattern has these four areas that I've told you about. There's the truth, there's our conduct and our ethics, and there's our devotional life, and then there is our emotional life. And there's a pattern, and we copy them. And I'm here to rehearse them before you, Sunday after Sunday. Pray like this. Live like this. Worship God like this. Feel in these ways. So there's no doubt at all about what is authentic, historic Christianity. It's not ours to choose the pattern. Um, We are to believe what Jesus teaches us. You might not like what Jesus teaches about hell. But he knows more about God and what sin deserves than you and I. And so we submit to Jesus. You might not like what Paul says about women not having a call to be preachers. But Paul says that. And we submit to him as the apostle, as the messenger of Jesus Christ. And we can't form our own, um, our own version of Christianity by cutting out things we don't like. You know, there are um, two ways of destroying a house, I've told you. You can get a stick of dynamite, and you can light the fuse and run away, and the whole house is destroyed. Or you can take it down brick by brick. So there are people, and they say to us, "Um, we're not going to break fellowship over the infallibility of Scripture, are we? And so one brick goes. Uh, You can be a Christian and not believe in the virgin birth, can't you? And another brick goes. Um, You don't have to believe in hell, do you, if you're a Christian? And another brick goes, and so on. And so the great house that God has erected, the temple of God, is destroyed in that way. Now, if you are knitting a sweater... You don't pick up a pattern for knitting a doll or knitting a pair of socks because you won't get a sweater if you follow that pattern. You have to follow the pattern to get the object you desire. And the nature of the Christian life is then recorded for us in Scripture. And we're to follow the pattern. You imagine an army has been defeated in a battle, and it's fleeing now back to the garrison. And uh, the victorious army is advancing on it and keeps shooting dead, one retreating soldier after another, shot dead. And at last, uh, the remnants of the army reach the garrison. 
But the, the disaster isn't complete because as the doors open, the last soldier is shot dead before he crosses safely into the garrison. None are saved. My friends, that's, that's what happens. That is what happens to the pattern of sound teaching. Here's, here's a book. And people over the last century have said, well, we... we we don't believe the Old Testament, do we? So they've torn out the Old Testament. And then they don't like the Apostle Paul. And my father's brother was a student at Brecon Theological College in the, in the late 1920s. And his mind was so injected with error that he never for many, many years as a minister ever preached on the Apostle Paul because he had destroy the simple Galilean gospel of love for God and love for one another. Paul went, the Old Testament went, and so on. The pattern is gone, and you've got a blank piece of paper. It's like um, that piece of paper, all that glitters is not gold, and you cut out one word, gold. All that glitters is not, and you cut out not and you have all that glitters is and you cut out is all that glitters and you cut out glitters all that and you cut out that and you cut out all and in the end you don't have a pattern of how we're to live and what we're to believe and what real affections holy affections are and our devotional life how you go to God and speak to God they are gone the pattern has been destroyed and so there's wretched handwriting. You can't understand what is being written. And so you end up saying, well, I think of Christianity like this. Or you end up in the day of the judges. The days of the judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no unity of understanding of who God is and how God was to be pleased and served. Thirdly, you keep the pattern of sound teaching in faith and love in Christ. Remember, Timothy, not only to keep it, but your attitude is so important, Timothy. How you keep it is crucial. When people criticize uh, evangelical Christians, they don't normally criticize their orthodoxy or even their morality, but they'll criticize their spirit. Well, they say, oh, he's moral enough, but I find his manner so unattractive. And people, when they criticize Paul, they didn't criticize his doctrine, but they said his bodily presence, when he doesn't have a John Wayne presence walking into an American saloon. And everyone stops and looks around to see who this great figure is. Paul had no presence. He could slip into a room. His bodily presence was weak. And his speech, he wasn't an orator like Peter. He spoke truly and with the help of the Holy Spirit. People wanted oratory. They wanted the hairs on the back of their neck to stand on edge as they heard an orator preach. Now, 
Paul says, you, you hold on to the truth. You keep the pattern of sound doctrine. But you must do it in faith and love. You must do it uh, in faith. Now you flood this word faith here with the opening words of Hebrews 11, which is the great chapter in the Old Testament on the nature of faith. And this is how it begins. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. Faith is being sure and being certain of what we hope for and what we don't see. So when people come in here, they hear the volume of your praise. You mean the words you say. They hear me preach and they think, well, I don't agree with him. At first they say that. I don't agree with him, but he knows what he believes. There was an article in the Times this week on Thursday written by Edward Lucas, who's a columnist in The Economist. He called the piece, Soppy Christians are their own worst enemies. That was the title. So, of course, my eyes were drawn to it straight away. The piece began, wherever we go on Sunday mornings, we have to arrive early to get a seat. And he describes the churches that he attends and uh, makes some interesting points. The language of the prayers is archaic, but that doesn't bother the scores of young people as they sing the hymns and read the Bible. None of this gives you the feeling of what statistics suggest, that this is a dying religion in a post-Christian country. What these congregations have in common is a belief that Christianity matters. It matters because it's true. Conviction matters much more than the differences between the various strands of Christianity. The real problem is that so much of the Christian church in Britain has lost its conviction, and thus its power to convince. Embarrassed jokiness has become the house style of many Christian churches. People want meaning in their lives and will flock to those who offer it. The lack of conviction and the apathy that it stokes is the big problem. That's what he said. It's in the Times on Thursday. So what is paramount then is um, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've used Jesus to buy Jesus. and He's become our wisdom and our truth. And we make much of him. And we speak much of him. Um, by him we've had forgiveness over the foolish, cruel things that we've done. And uh, by him then we've, we're not facing annihilation. But a new heavens and a new earth. And a, a restoration of this groaning world. He rose from the dead. And we say, uh, the Bible says, the Bible says, the conviction of our faith, if you're going to be a good witness, you know, it really is essential. Two Americans came uh, to our house. They came um, on the train to um, Aberystwyth, and then they got the bikes out of the guard's van, and then they came on their bikes. They were going to do North Wales, and they stayed with us, and one man I knew, oh, I just think the world of him. He's today a missionary in Spain. And there was a young man with him who was also a Christian, but uh, he had an immature grasp of Christianity. And my friend was so patient and so wise. I would listen to them talking. and just, oh, I wish I could be like that. 
he'd let him have the last word and then he'd say, oh, that is so interesting and that's a good point and so on. And spoke to him and off they went then after a few days. I was in a conference with him about four months ago and enjoyed so much listening to what he had to say. He spoke with tender conviction to that man. I asked him at the conference, how is he? All those years ago when you came and stayed with us in Aberystwyth. He said, oh, he's doing well, yes. Oh, he's got a lovely wife and children and he's in office in his church and so on. It's the great message of Hebrews 11. They subdued kingdoms and obtained promises and worked righteously because, we're told, they kept trusting in God. When they were threatened with the burning fiery furnace or the lion's den, they said, he said he'll be with us. He'll keep us. He'll watch over us. He's promised not to leave us. Let's go on trusting him. Let's remember what Abram did under pressure and Sarah and what a fool he made and how he hurt a young servant girl there at that time. Don't, don't let's lose trust. God had promised him he's going to have a child and he wanted to do it his way. Let's do it God's way, not Abram's way. And we're also to uphold and defend the gospel in love. Okay, in conviction, in faith, in confidence, but also in love. And we all say amen to that. It would be better, I suppose, not to speak at all about Jesus if you cannot speak about him in love. So, Timothy, you love the flock. That uh, there in Ephesus, God has given to you to care for. Keep the pattern. Lay down your life for Ephesian sheep. Shepherd them. Speak the truth in love. So, um, the last point I want to make to you this morning is that we are to guard what's been entrusted to us by the help of the Holy Spirit. Guard the good deposits entrusted you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. Keep it. Guard it. He says that twice. Do you notice that? With only eight words in between. Guard it. And then he Guard. He says, never forget that your vocation is to be a guard. Not a railway guard or a security guard or a, a prison guard. But a, a Christian who has to guard the gospel. The gospel needs guarding. And we do so with help from God. And the help isn't here now. Uh, Angels and principalities and powers and rulers. But we have them always with us. But the help we have to guard the gospel is the Holy Spirit. So God can command us to do whatever God wants us to do. That's what we say. Augustine said, command whatever you want from me, but you give me the power to keep your commandments. If I'm to suffer, if I'm to know a time by myself, if I'm to know rejection, then 
you give me power to endure these things. Whatever you command, you give me power. I will give you the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. It's, uh, it's an exhortation to Timothy to be a strong young man. And uh, to not give in. To sweat for it and shed blood for it and die for it if it's important. But it doesn't stop there. It isn't full stop then. There's a little stroke, isn't there? In your Bible there's a hyphen. A stroke of the pen. A dash. Guarded with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. It's a throwaway remark as though it was so obvious to Paul and so obvious to Timothy and should be so obvious to us that we don't face then Aberystwyth and next week and the appointments and the challenges and the testings by ourselves. But we do so with the Holy Spirit who is in us. You remember when uh, you were particularly down and the children had a bug and your husband wasn't well and you had so much on and your mother said, oh, I'll come. And she came with her her bag and her nitrous and things in and she didn't sit in an armchair and look at you. She did what mothers do. She cleaned and washed. She put the things in. You sit down. You lie down now, she said. She looked after the children. She mopped up the vomit. She had the baby when it cried on her lap, and she was there for a week. It was just a godsend to you that she was there. And then she did not stay a welcome. Your husband got better. The children were back in school, and you were... Give her a big hug. As she waved goodbye and she drove off home to her husband. You have the Holy Spirit. I've given you a phrase and I hear you quote it. I wish it was original to me. But I picked it up from somebody else. And you know what the phrase is. We have illimitable access to an indwelling spirit illimitable access we have to him. Say, Spirit, help me now. The phone rings and we hear some things. Spirit, help me. I'm under pressure. I'm weak. Spirit of God. Help me. Help. That's all we say. Help. Please help me. I can do all things through the Spirit who helps me. I can cope with my wife and with unemployment and troubles in the church and children getting wobbly teaching and pressures. I can cope. I can more than cope. I can be more than a conqueror through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I was talking to a Christian friend of mine and I was saying, how are things now? How are things in your church in Cambridge? How are things? He quoted to me Second Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. (laughs) That was 
a conversational stopper when he said that. He didn't say, well, you know, we're getting by. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Lord, bless your word to us and help us, help us please today, help us the Sunday school, evening service, our conversations together at meal times, help us, help us tomorrow at college, at school, in the Monday duties that every housewife has, help us when our families are not well and we're not feeling 100%, help us. Help the cause of Christ and his truth. Please help us. Thank you for the deposit you've given us. Help us to guard it. Thank you for the pattern of healthy living that you've given us. Help us to be right in those four areas of our lives. In teaching and in our holy living. And in our devotion to thee. And in our affections, make us credible Christians, we beseech thee. In Jesus' name, amen.